Good afternoon again. You've got your Bibles. Go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 3. We seem to be moving through this pretty quickly. It's been fun. It's been fun for me. I hope it's been fun for you. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. Follow along as we, as we read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God The older I get, the more I realize that what is valuable to me today is often not valuable to me tomorrow. When I was 11 years old, I thought baseball cards were going to be the most valuable thing in the world. I thought they were the most valuable thing in the world. And in fact, I had this Don Mattingly rookie card, which according to the Beckett magazine, was worth about $45 at the time. So I took good care of this card. I knew this was gonna be my ticket to being a millionaire one day, and so I bought this $4 super thick plastic case to put it in, and then I kept it in this box and I stored it in the back of my closet so that no one would get in there and take it from me. This thing was, was important to me. It was something I valued, and, and then my interest changed, and I no longer cared about the card. Somewhere between 6th grade and when Laura and I got married and began digging stuff out of my closet, the card was absolutely lost and I could care less about it. But as a 6th grader, I was, I was sure that this was going to be worth bundles of cash by now. So last Friday, I, I looked it up on eBay, which didn't exist back then, and this card that was going to be worth millions for me today is now worth 99 cents plus shipping. This once prized possession of my life is worth less than a McDonald's cheeseburger today. And the older you get, the, the more stories you have like that one. So many things that you valued five years ago are simply not important to us today. And that's true of financial value, but also of sentimental value. Those sweet letters from that boy who you didn't marry, you don't care about those anymore. That t-shirt from your vacation down to Florida, that, that was really important. That's the one you're painting in today. What we see in this text is that one thing is of surpassing value yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forevermore. And, and that's truly knowing Jesus Christ. And what we begin to see in this text is what it means to be a Christian. Because nothing, literally nothing, is more important than knowing Jesus Christ. It's more valuable than all the money in the world. It's more valuable than freedom. It's more valuable even than a cure to cancer. Now... Take note that knowing Jesus is not the same as knowing about Jesus, and we'll see that. The first thing I want you to see in this verse, though, is this false ending. It, it begins with, finally, my brothers. Now, 
I don't know if you've been doing the math, but we're only 65% of the way through this. Uh, there are 104 verses, and I think we're at 68 by the end of the day. And so we're really not all the way through this. It's, it's almost like that time you're standing up in the movie theater because the return of the king is over, and, oh wait, there's another ending, and another one, and, and another one. This letter, remember, was written at a time when it was written in hand. And Paul was likely planning to, to end this letter pretty soon before thinking of more that needed to be said. He wasn't necessarily writing it, but the letter continued on as he was dictating it. So he's planned his closing statement here, at least what he thinks is going to be the closing statement. And once again, we're encouraged to, to rejoice. Rejoice. And this phrase rejoice is so, such a common phrase. And we're so used to hearing it that we simply want to just skip over it. Okay, we got that. But I want you to notice that the cause and the object of this rejoicing is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's not rejoicing in our circumstances or rejoicing in the gifts of God, but rejoice in the Lord. And this is good because our circumstances change. And our Lord never does. Some people grow bored with their faith. You might even feel that now. You expected more world-changing results. You want something new, something different, and you might feel disappointed that everything comes back to this simple gospel because we're wanting something new. In this first verse, Paul is, is saying, it doesn't bother me to teach you the same gospel again, over and over and over. Keep in mind, this is 10 years after the church in Philippi was founded, and he's still teaching the same thing. And he gives them the reason. He says that it is safe for them. But safe how? What's the danger? The danger is this, that anything other than the gospel of grace, anything more or anything less, is not the gospel at all. In Galatians 1.8, Paul is making the same argument, and he writes, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Accursed because anything different fails to be the gospel. If we don't hear the gospel on a regular basis. We're going to float off into heresy or legalism or, or some sense of hopelessness, and Paul loves them, and so he's teaching them over and over and over again this gospel. And I know we hear that, and part of you thinks this sounds incredibly boring. Our current culture quickly grows sick of the same things. We're always wanting something new, something different. For instance, when I was a child, there were three flavors of Lay's potato chips. Three. Original, barbecue, and sour cream and onion. Those are all fairly good flavors. Today, though, there are 46 different flavors of Lay's potato chips. That's just in the United States. Included in that are bacon, mac, and cheese, cappuccino potato chips, wasabi, and my favorite, although it tastes horrible, is chicken and waffles. So our, our culture is one that is constantly looking for change, constantly looking for something new. Our God is always the same. Now, the fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is God? And the answer says, God is a, a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I remember hating to hear that he was unchangeable when I first heard that. Uh, how could that be a characteristic of God? It, it made God seem boring, uncreative. Surely he's changing, right? But the reason God doesn't change is that he is perfect. Any change you made to perfection would result in something become less perfect. Same con concept's true with the gospel. It's perfect. Sometimes 
people feel like the gospel isn't really relatable to modern people. And in some sense, maybe they're right. But too often, the solution attempted by Christians who might mean well is to change the gospel. Make it more about helping people or more about believing in yourself or more about having a better marriage or better children or success or social justice, even some vaguely non-biblical idea of what love is. And changing the gospel, though, is terribly wrong. And it's incredibly unhelpful. Because the gospel doesn't need to change. It's us. It's people who need the change. And the true gospel... The old gospel, the never-changing, same yesterday, today, and tomorrow gospel, is what brings about change in people. And so honestly, I don't care if you love your new and interesting chicken and waffle potato chips, but don't go after a new gospel, a different gospel. So let us be simple gospel people, hearing the gospel over and over, believing the gospel over and over, resting in the gospel over and over. And so for their safety... Paul's going to continue to preach the gospel, and for your safety, we as a church will continue to preach the true gospel of grace. The entire verse, too, is this warning. Kind you might shout out loud. With each warning building on the previous warning, we, we see this as, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the mutilators. The, the dogs spoken here, though, are, they're not the friendly family pets that you're used to. These are mangy stray dogs that roam through the city and they just tear everything apart. This was a, an illustration of the people who were coming to this local church and they were teaching something destructive, something that will tear the church apart. The situation is that this church in Philippi was, was filled with Gentiles, people who were not Jewish. And so these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators were, were teaching the Gentiles that they needed to first become Jews and before they could even come to faith in Christ. It was putting something before that. And in practice, what this meant is that the men were being taught that circumcision was required. And as Paul confronts them, he's comparing circumcision to an old pagan practice in which people would cut their flesh. And they were doing so to, to find favor before these false gods. And, and the Jews for centuries had looked shamefully towards pagans for doing this. And, and Paul's making this negative connection between the pagan practice of, of mutilation and this false teaching about circumcision. And he's doing it to make the point that this requirement is not Christianity. Circumcision itself is, was and, and is not the heart of the issue here. It was making circumcision a requirement for salvation that was the issue. Um, in the Old Testament, the sign of, of God's covenant with his people was, was circumcision. It didn't equate to salvation, uh, but it was a sign and a seal showing that they were part of the people of God, that they were part of the visible covenant community. I've always found it strange, you know, you can hardly talk about this without at least acknowledging, but what an unusual sign of the covenant, right? God could have chosen a tattoo, maybe a special haircut. We could have all just wore blue, but he chooses a sign that's going to be forever incredibly awkward to talk about in public. There's no way around it. One that involves cutting. And as we've already stated, this is the sign of the, the covenant, circumcision. Praise God, then, that, that in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it's, it's baptism that is the sign of the covenant. Anyway, these people are, are saying that before the Gentiles could be saved from their sin, they had to be circumcised. Confidence was wrongly in circumcision rather than rightly in Christ, received by grace through faith alone. It's not unlike someone today saying, 
they're a Christian because they were baptized or because of their confirmation or because their parents were. And, and Paul's saying this, that's not true. Romans 2.28 is making a similar point when Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's, it's spiritual. It's, it's deeper than a mere physical submission. Uh, it's what God states in Deuteronomy 10.16 saying, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's exactly what we're reading in verse 3. We see the true circumcision is not physical but spiritual. And then he gives us these three descriptions of what constitutes true circumcision or true Christians. First thing he says is that it's those who worship by the Spirit of God. Those who worship by the Spirit of God. And Romans 8 makes this very clear. All who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ are filled by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual thing. You remember when, when Jesus spoke with the woman at the well and they're discussing all sorts of things. But one of the things they're discussing was where's the proper place to worship God? Where's the proper location? And, and Jesus responds by saying something like, I don't care where you worship. I, I care how you worship. John 4, 23 and 24 is where it is. The exact thing Jesus says is, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We need to be careful that we don't drift into this. We can be physically present here with the people of God to worship the person of God and yet be spiritually absent. Just going through the motions or looking for some sense of stirred up emotions and those both have a place in worship but that's not the heart of worship. We worship with our hearts. We believe and we express that we are sinners and that Jesus is our Savior and that he is the most important person in all of existence. And that's the second item on this list. The true circumcision are those who glory in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here that, that says glory in Christ means to boast. It's what we see in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christian, who and what is your hope in? The third mark of spiritual circumcision listed in verse 3 is worded, put no confidence in the flesh. This is the difference between religious confidence and gospel confidence. Religious confidence is a confidence in what you do. Baptism. Remaining sexually pure. It's usually great things that are being put in a position that they don't belong. It's like drywall. It's great for walls in a house, but it's worthless as a foundation for a house. So religious confidence is confidence in what you do, but gospel confidence is confidence in what Jesus did for you. And that's at the heart of worship, true worship. And this means that that confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ are mutually exclusive. And then just to drive this point home, in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul shows us that he has more reason to put confidence in the flesh than any of us. So we get to hear this good works resume of his. And it sounds incredibly arrogant, doesn't it? 
And it would be, except he's confessing that it means nothing compared to Christ. It's a way that Paul is pointing out that I'm not resting in grace because I've lived this pathetic failure of a life. He says, praise God it's grace because I've lived awesome. And it's all worthless anyway. And so some of these advantages that Paul has uh, that we see he received by birth, other of them uh, are results of hard work in his life. And so here's his his seven-point resume of of righteousness. Number one, circumcised on the eighth day. This is significant because that's exactly how God prescribed it in Genesis 17, 12. It says, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Well, Paul can check that one off. Numbers 2 and 3 of of Paul's righteous resume are that he is of the people of Israel and that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. He was ethnically a descendant of God's chosen nation. These are benefits that he was born into. Uh, Number 4, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Most likely an appeal to having come from a family line of of all Jews. No Gentiles in his family line. Uh, Number 5, as to the law of Pharisee. He knows the religious law. He knows it well, and he's kept this law in the sense that the Pharisees kept it. And, and they were known to have kept it in the most strict manner uh, of any of them. In short, he was a really good legalist. Six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was such a passionate Jew that he was giving all of his efforts to squash Christianity. That is, until he, he meets Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, at that point, he, he meets Christ, and he sees that Christ is true and real and everything changes for him. Lastly, number seven, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He ends his, his list with this reminder that, you know, he's a really good rule keeper. And what we learn is that Paul's better than just about anyone when it comes to being religious. Seven out of seven on his list. That's pretty impressive, but, but so What? That's not how sinners find right standing before God. So let's, let's turn this around for a moment. What's on your righteous resume? What would you list out if you started to list these things? That you've memorized more scripture than any of your friends? That you've, you've shared the gospel with bunches of people? Is, is your father an elder in a church somewhere? Baptized as a child or an adult? Did, did you remain a virgin until your wedding day? or educated at a Christian school, uh, been on mission trips to faraway lands, do you serve the needy in our city, or start each morning reading the Bible? What's tricky is every one of those things are wonderful. I I want those for me. I want those for you. Every one of those things make for beautiful walls and a home, but they would make a terrible foundation. You'll fall right through the floor if you try to stand on those. So don't. Don't. More important than a spotless resume is a a signed confession. Uh, What I mean by that is, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that Christ is your Savior? Have you believed that? Have you hoped in that? I remember hearing this illustration years ago. Suppose we had a contest to see who could throw a baseball to the moon. We all line up and we, we throw. Some would throw further than others. I'd most likely beat all of you that are eight years old or under. Mine would go higher. But Sam Preston would undoubtedly throw further than I could throw, and James Shield would be able to throw further than Sam. But in the end, it it wouldn't matter who threw the furthest. We'd all fail the challenge. Not a single one of us would be able to throw a ball to the moon, not even close. Our good works, our righteous acts are like that. 
Someone in this room might have more good works to their name than you have. But we all fall terribly short of reaching the goal. That's kind of the point. We can't elevate ourselves to God, and that's okay because God has come down to us. We're like a, a child reaching for forgiveness, reaching for salvation on the top shelf that's out of our reach, but then Jesus brings it down to our level, and he gives it to us freely, freely to the children of God. So this all culminates in these verses 7 and 8. These are such wonderful verses. Follow along as I read them again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 7, he's saying that everything that he thought was credit to his account is really debt. It's like Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or as the King James you're probably more familiar with says, All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. He's not putting confidence in his works or in his history. He's putting confidence in his Savior, in, in Jesus Christ. And then we see in verse 8, we, we see that he suffered loss. Remember when, when Paul became a Christian, he lost his reputation. He likely lost relationships with, with family members. He lost his place and his prestige within the Jewish system there. Paul's the kind of guy who, who really could succeed well in the world. And he walks away from this easier life, this, this safer life. And, and this still happens today. The story of Rosaria Butterfield gives a beautiful picture of this. He's actually written a book that goes into great more detail. But Rosaria says that her identity was that of a professor, a lesbian, and an atheist. And she began to interact with some loving Christians, and these Christians both displayed and, and spoke verbally the gospel into her life. Uh, eventually, she came to believe in Christ. And, and looking back, she's very aware of all that she lost as a result of the gospel. And she, she states this in saying that in gaining Christ, she would lose her lesbian partner. She would lose her place in the LGBT community. She would likely lose her livelihood because she was working on the faculty of a university. Looking back, she said of her old life, I've lost everything but the dog. But Jesus is, is real. And what she gained is of greater worth than all that she lost. That's, that's Paul here. He could have lived an amazing life of prestige. We all know people like that. People who could do anything they wanted almost. Who could be high up in their profession. Who could have notoriety, could have more money, could have so many things, but they choose something else. And the reason they choose the way they did is because their values are, are now being shaped by the gospel, are being shaped by this reality that, that Christ is real and eternity is, is real. That's Paul. He, he could have been a big deal in the Jewish world, but Jesus changes all of that. Jesus flips everything upside down so that it gave him a new scale by which to measure worth and importance big thing I want you to understand here is we need to know how to rightly value things. I'll tell you a story from my childhood that's always helped me understand this. When, when I was somewhere around nine years old, I, having a bicycle meant that we could adventure. We could get out away from, from our house and our family and, and my brothers and I could go on these adventures. And at one point, there was this new neighborhood being built next to our neighborhood. 
and my brother and I just liked to explore these houses. We'd go into them until they locked them up. And so we'd go into these houses at the various stages of construction. As we looked through a house, one that was very far along, uh, one that was everything but the doors, basically, were almost there. And inside this house, we find this 18 by 18 by 18 inch cube, uh, a perfect wooden cube. The sides had been smooth, sanded perfectly, and the corners were perfectly rounded. It, it was this sealed, closed, and perfectly smooth even there, and it really was just this perfect wooden box, and we were so impressed by it that we took it. I don't remember even thinking if we stole it or not, but we took it. We stole it. <laughs> and we had these plans to paint it, and we were going to drill a hole in it, and it was going to be this greatest birdhouse anyone's ever seen, and we get home and we find out, you know, we don't have a drill. And out of this fear that my brothers would smash it because I was the youngest of three, I, I kept that box with me. And for a few days, it was next to my pillow while I slept. And, and as I sat and watched TV or I'd eat meals, I would keep it in my lap. And uh, about a le week later, when we finally came to the conclusion we're never going to get into this box with a drill, we, uh, we did what all boys do. We decided we'd smash this open. And we began to wonder this, this question, you know, before we did that. Why did someone make this perfect box and leave it in the house? What was the point of it? And like I said, I'm the youngest of three, so my brothers talked me into destroying it. They did the honors. I just got to watch. And when they got it open, they discovered that this treasure, this treasure that I had been holding on to was a, a handmade porta potty Some construction worker had handcrafted and sealed this thing shut after using it. That's a disgusting story. <laughs> And believe it or not, it actually makes sense in this verse. It's, it's what Paul's speaking of in this last sentence of verse 8. For the sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When we hear this word rubbish, we tend to think of a British guy walking around talking about trash of some sort. It's a more emphatic word than that. The King James Version translates it as dung. Yeah, dung. The same thing that was filling this wooden box. And this Greek word shows up only once in all of the New Testament. It's, it's skubala. It's fun to say, isn't it? Skubala. It's also a very rude word. It's like most slang words, meaning the very same thing. And it's used here to make this very emphatic point. Uh, and, and the point is this. Whatever you lose in following Christ, prestige, pride in your good works, success, relationships, Family, vocation, safety, the easy life, whatever it might be, no matter what you lose in following Christ, it's worth it. Don't spend your life carrying around a perfect wooden box only to find out in the end it's, it's full of scuba. Rightly value the gospel. Knowing Jesus is more valuable than, than anything and, and everything else. Now, I, I want to close with this quote from George Mueller. It, there was a missionary in England in the 1800s, and this, this quote is helpful for Christians who are asking this question, what does it mean to value Christ above everything else today, to, to value Christ in my daily life, my ordinary life? And George Muller writes this. He says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend to every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how much I might glorify the Lord, but how might I get my soul into a happy state? Brothers and sisters, let us 
find our satisfaction. Let us find our rest in what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let us build our lives on this rock-solid foundation of the gospel that Christ has died for our sins. And we rest in that. We don't earn it, we rest in it. 